Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome. Um, our speaker today uh, is Heather Monroe, uh, who not so recently received her uh, PhD in anthropology from Durham University. Oh, no, no, I haven't received it yet. Haven't received it yet? Yeah. All right. Uh, she <laughs> should be receiving her PhD soon. She has completed her research work yes. at Durham University. Uh, so this is recorded if the assessors can hurry up and, uh, <laughs> uh, and provide assessment. Um, the doctoral dissertation is entitled The Future is Female, New Political Movements and Social Change in Haredi Society in Israel. Uh, Heather is also a member of the Center for the Study of Jewish Culture, Society and Politics at Durham. And the title of her talk today, which is derived from the PhD, is uh, Ashkenazi Hegemony in Haredi Israeli Society. Heather, thank you for coming. Thank you, Yaakov. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> so I am not quite submitted yet, but I'm almost submitted. This is a presentation that focuses on one of my major chapters in, in the dissertation. Um, and it really focuses on discrimina discrimination against Sephardim in the Haredi world and um, the erasure of Sephardi culture and um, what that has brought forth, which may be surprising to some and maybe not to others. Um, but one thing I sort of always preach to everyone about first is why we have to start caring about the Haredim in Israel studies. Um, right now, the Haredi count for 12% of the total population of Israel, not the Jewish population, the total population, and that number is growing really, really quickly. Um, this is from the Jerusalem Institute for Policy Research, who did a study of um, the projections of population, and as you can see, um, the Blue left side is a normal demographic progression. That's the Jewish demography for the rest of Jewish society in Israel, and it's really healthy and normal looking. Um, the left side in green is the Haredi demography. Um, and in 2017, when they completed this study, 50% of the population of Haredim was under the age of 16. They have an 82% marriage rate, and 44% of those marriages happen before the age of 24. So that greatly increases their fertility window. Um, and right now, the fertility rate is the highest of any segment in the country, higher than the Arab-Israeli rate, um, with 6.9 births per couple. That is a slight drop in the last 10 years. Um, I believe it used to be about 7.5 per couple. Um, but the Israel Jerusalem Institute in, for, uh, and the uh, Israel Population uh, Office doesn't believe it's going to drop much more than that. A lot of the demographic studies with Haredim show that they break the, the rule of demography where if you get more secular education, you should have less children. It doesn't work for Haredi society. Um, and we'll get, the reasons for that are complicated, but generally have to do with the Haredi identity, which I'm gonna get into now. Um, so Haredi doesn't exist as a category until relatively recently, of course. Uh, it starts, the roots of this identity start in 19th century Eastern Europe, um, with some religious leaders starting to respond to the Haskalah, the, the Jewish Enlightenment, 
um, and starting to resist any incursion of secular ideology into Jewish communities. Um, later on in the 19th century, this turns into um, national Zionist ideologies in Eastern Europe and the rest of Europe. Um, and so it becomes much more of a profound reaction to Zionism in general and especially to religious Zionism, which is starting to grow at that point. Um, because that is, to these religious leaders, a dilution of religion with secular nationalist ideology. Um, eventually, all these leaders who often disagree with each other coalesce into the formation of Agudas Israel, which was founded in 1912. Now, Agudas Israel creates a dilemma. It, it's a community organization. It's a religious organization. They're trying to systematize um, how Ashkenazi Jews observe around the world, especially over in North America, which is growing. Um, but they also suddenly have to become political leaders. Agudas Israel was a political party in Poland before the Holocaust. Um, and so in order to sort of desecularize themselves, they start investing in the idea of Das Torah. Das Torah cements rabbinical authority. It's taken from a tractate in the Talmud, which Gershon Bekon says is a, a misinterpretation, but Haredi leaders today would say is not a misinterpretation, that rabbis, through their great wisdom, can make rulings on any aspect of life. And in that way, rabbinical leaders become political leaders, and politics is religion. So the identity of Haredi at this point conflates religion and political identity as one and forms it as an inseparable thing. Um, and that's what we're going to look at when we go into the existence of the state of Israel. So for the first 60 years of the state of Israel, Haredi society went through gradually increasing stringencies. And what that meant for men was an increasing focus on yeshiva attendance and study. So in this um, wacky graph to the left, which is a bit inverted, what you can actually see is the older men, 75 and older in 2008, only 56% of them have ever attended a great yeshiva, yeshiva gadol. Um, and then on the far side, where we have 90.2%, that's 25 to 34 year olds, so young men in 2008, 90.2% .2 of them are, have attended or are attending yeshiva currently. Um, it's also an emphasis on spending more time in yeshiva. So traditionally, a, a learned Jewish man who was religious might go to yeshiva for a few years, and then he'd go and, and pursue a livelihood and study perhaps a bit in his spare time. In the second graph, you see the orange is the 75 and older men in 2008. More than half of them have spent between one to eight years of study in yeshiva, and about a third only have spent 16 or more years studying in yeshiva. Um, by the time we have middle-aged people in 2008, it, um, so the men aged 45 to 54 are in the blue. I'm trying to make this really clear for people in the back. 61% um, of the middle-aged men in 2008 have spent 16 or more years studying in the yeshiva, and 
only about a quarter of them spent between one and eight years. So everybody is supposed to study in yeshiva and spend as long as possible doing so. So I want to um, now explain a little bit about the streams of yeshivot. When the yeshiva, remember, is a very Ashkenazi institution. When non-Ashkenazi Mizrahim and um, Sephardim Olim arrive in Israel, they are told the only way to be religious is to attend yeshiva. Um, and so you see here at the top the two major groups, the Litvish and the Hasidic. Hasidic refer to Litvish as misnagdim, you might have heard of, or I sometimes call them yeshivish. Um, <laughs> and then there's a tiny 6% about, of Chabad. Chabad is really different in Israel, and um, I'm not going to talk much about them today, but if you have questions, do ask me later. And then you see at the bottom here, a significant portion of yeshiva attendance in 2014 is through the Sephardic yeshivot. What happened was, as Sephardim arrived, um, they sort of became part of the culture of yeshiva study as the only way to be properly religious, and yet were discriminated against and excluded from the Litvish and Hasidish yeshivas. And so Shas opened their own stream of yeshivot, and um, these are generally considered not as well respected. Um, it, it's sort of more of a second-class yeshiva. You're not going to get as good of a marriage match if you go to a Shas yeshiva. And then you have a really interesting segment over here of Mizrahi Jews educated in Litvak institutions. Um, yes, they are using Mizrahi and Sephardi interchangeably here a bit, um, and we'll get to why that happens later. Uh, but what that 12.4% is, is Sephardim and Mizrahim who have completely conformed to Ashkenazi culture to fit in and go to a better yeshiva. For women, the 60 years worth of increasing stringency has been an emphasis on modesty and gender separation. There have been increasingly strict codes of dress to which they've had to conform. Um, for Mizrahi and Sephardi Olim, this was incredibly difficult, especially because the Ashkenazi mentality believes that loud colors are immodest, traditional things from Morocco, etc., would become considered very immodest and almost sexualized in the Ashkenazi Haredi world. Um, there's also been increasing emphasis on gender separation in formerly shared public spaces. Uh, I'm sure many of you are aware of the removal of images of women um, from advertisements, magazines, even children's books. Um, and there's also an increasing emphasis on kol b'isha erva, sometimes called kol isha. Um, it's a tiny tractate of the Talmud that says the voice of a woman is like nakedness. And this is the rationalization behind preventing Haredi women from running for office in the Haredi parties um, and excluding them from secular leadership roles. Um, it has also created a really thriving by women for women arts space. Um, which I do a lot of my research in. Um, I'm not going to talk about it today, but some of the women I've, I'm speaking about are also artists, so feel free to ask me later. Um, but SD here is telling us a little bit about that experience of a Sephardi family arriving in Israel and 
being told, okay, you're religious, so you're Haredi. Um, her parents originally came from Morocco. They are Olim. But when they came here to Israel, they were teenagers and they came to Haredi schools. This happened a lot. You take um, religious kids who are coming in, having fled home, and immediately putting them into an Ashkenazi Haredi school. Then they got married and they made a whole Haredi family. I was the oldest child in a big family of 12. My mother got married, she was very young. She was about 17. As a Mizrahi girl, I was educated through the Ashkenazi schools. So Esti grew up in Sfat, and there wasn't a Shah school for her. So she went as a minority to Beis Yaakov, Beis Yaakov being the famous Ashkenazi Haredi girls school. I have Sephardi friends, but we were a minority in the class. Again, she's using Mizrahi and Sephardi interchangeably, and we're gonna get to that in a minute. In the last 10 years, we've seen some really rapid change in the Haredi world. Um, because uh, Haredi women ended up being the wage earners while men were in yeshiva, there was a lot more secular education for them. This created a big crisis in the home. They literally talk about it to me as the marriage crisis. Um, if you want to read a book about the um, lead up to it, Nurit Stadler's book on yeshiva fundamentalism captures the conflict really well. She's published it in 2009, so it was right before the change sort of happened. Um, but now, rabbis have seen that maybe it would be good to educate men a little more in secular studies. Um, so this has led to the creation of the Haredi campuses um, all over Jerusalem and B'nai Barak. Um, it's also, it, there's a changing situation because the rapid growth of the population has led to a lot of pressure. Of course, there's already housing pressure in the center of the country, as we all know. Now the Haredim, who I speak to, are moving to settlements in non-Haredi neighborhoods. A lot of the settlements who the people I did research with um, lived in, um, where they lived, it wasn't places like Beitar, which are the Haredi settlements. They were living in like very Datilumi, Hardali kind of settlements, like Betel, um, and parts of the Gush Etzion, even though they're Haredim. So they're moving to non-Haredi places, and they're starting to see new ways of being Jewish. They're, they're realizing um, that their neighbors are not bad Jews after all. Um, there's also much more <laughs> of a focus now on a lot more families are choosing to send their sons to yeshiva high schools instead of yeshiva kitan. So that means that they do the yeshiva subjects, but they also do secular subjects in high school. Um, and, and so there's a bit of a reinvention of the identity going on. It has not, however, seemed to change attitudes about accepting Sephardi culture and Mizrahi culture. Um, so I spoke to all my Ashkenazi women about how they felt about Sephardim as well. Um, and it's always surprising what people will say to you. Uh, it really reveals how deeply ingrained and totally accepted some of the, the uh, discrimination and racist ideas are. So this is Miriam. She's a Litvish woman who grew up in Muncie. Uh, she's lived in, in Israel since she was married. She mostly lived in Jerusalem. She lives um, elsewhere now. She said to me, yes, there is a problem today in the Haredi world with Sephardim. There is a difference. I don't know why. 
Their homes are more violent. Maybe because in Arab society, there's more violence. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I had to hide my face and not react when I, when I got that quote. Um, <laughs> but uh, this obviously is going back to really traditional Orientalist tropes uh, about the violent brown body. Um, Haredim don't serve in the army, but it doesn't mean that they have any less prejudice against the Arab. Um, in fact, I found in incredible prejudice about Arabs everywhere I went in the Haredi world. Um, and so to call a Jew an, an Arab <laughs> is almost the worst <laughs> insult that you could do. So it's conflating a, a Jewish other with the worst sort of non-Jewish other. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of, of work published in America in the last 20 years or so about the racist tropes that center um, racial dysfunction in the family unit, um, saying, you know, African Americans don't achieve as much as white people because their families are dysfunctional. Um, so that kind of mentality has entered into Miriam's whole mentality about um, Sephardim and Mizrahim. This is Cyrilla. She's a Biala Hasidic woman. And she says to me, it's not color-based. It's cultural. You know, if they really want to culturally fit in, they can get in. But if not, then you're not fit to go to that school. We were talking about excluding Sephardim from Beis Yaakov. I don't want my sweet Hasidic little girl exposed to that because Sephardi culture is more... And she looks for a word, and then she says, expressive. <laughs> They're just less refined. They're loud. It's about refinement. So here we have the racist trope of the loud, loud brown body. Um, when she says expressive, I think it is fairly clear that she's suggesting they're certainly more immodest and probably more sexualized. Um, so again, that's more Orientalist themes. Um, and this idea that it's not a color problem, it's a culture problem, is a very neoliberal racist idea. And cultural racism is just as much racism as traditional racism. It's just using different words to say the same thing. Now, Bina is interesting because it almost looks like she's not so prejudiced on the surface. She's a Litvish woman, but she worked for 20 years for Shas. She has um, been part of the Sephardi community. She gets along and has many friends in the Sephardi world. And so when I asked her about it, she said to me, in 10 years, look, it's not going to matter. No one cares these days. My nephew just married this beautiful Moroccan girl. She's so dark and lovely. Their kids will just be Jewish. Everyone is intermarrying now. By the next generation, we will all just be Jewish. The differences will be gone. And that's where you get to the crux of it. The differences will be gone. She's not happy her son is married to a, a Sephardi girl because her son is going to get Dafina. She still wants him to eat cholent on Shabbos. Um, and she doesn't want him to go to yeshiva in a beautifully embroidered shirt made by his wife. Um, she, she says um, some very, you know, exotic brown beauty kind of tropes that, again, go back to Orientalism. Um, what she's really talking about 
is the erasure of Sephardi culture. No one cares so long as Sephardi Haredi Jews conform to Ashkenazi cultural norms. Um, and talking to Esti, who's very aware of all the discrimination um, and has responded to it um, powerfully, she, she also is sort of experiencing a certain kind of erasure of the distinctions and the uniqueness of Mizrahi and Sephardi culture. And this, this goes to the crux of why everyone is using Mizrahi and Sephardi interchangeably. So at the end of that last quote I used from her, she says, as a Mizrahi girl, I was educated through the Ashkenazi schools. Beis Yaakov, I have Sephardi friends, but we were a minority in the class. So I said to her, wait, Mizrahi, not Sephardi? She just told me she was Moroccan. Esti says, eh, Mizrahi, Sephardi, it's all the same. Here, it's the same. Like, it's not the same meaning, but in Israel, when you say Sephardi or Mizrahi, it's the same. It's all the people who came from the Islamic countries to Israel. And so I want to press her on this and see how much she's, she's sort of erased this internally. And so I say, but North African is different from Yemen, yes? And Esti says, it's totally different, yes, but, but here it's all the same class. And I said, they are not Ashkenazi. And Esti says, yeah, they are the others. So as the other, that is one more reason to my criticism. So we were talking about when she started to rebel. So what she's talking about is the erasure of these distinctions because it really is the creation of an underclass. Um, I don't know much about this situation in the broader Israeli society, but I have the sense that it's not just an underclass situation in the Haredi world. I think there, this is somewhat mirroring generally Israeli society, but please feel free to tell me more about that after when I'm done. Um, and this is a really um, strong example about how anti-Sephardi discrimination works um, and also how religious women use their agency in a very non-liberal religious way to achieve what they need to achieve. So this is Ruth's story. Ruth, um, Ruth Kulian formed the Haredi Women's Party, which I will talk more about in a little while. Um, she lives in Petach Tikva, and the Aguda overseeing Beis Yaakov is much better than the Shas school, so she wants to send her daughter there. And she contacts Beis Yaakov, and they're rejected. Um, so she seeks help with a Sephardi Shas rabbi. Um, he says his daughter's at, already at that Beis Yaakov. He doesn't want to jeopardize her position, so he's not going to advocate for Ruth. So she sort of takes it into her own hands, and she calls up very, very she's got lots of chutzpah, um, and gives them a fake Ashkenazi name that has a lot of yichus. Um, yichus is like the respect within the Haredi community. It, it's a name that comes from lots of great rebbes. Um, and immediately she is offered a space, and they say, come over and sign the papers. So she arrives, and as soon as they see her, they say, no, we're not letting you sign these papers. So she appeals the decision first to the school board and then all the way up to the top to the Minister for, of Education for Independent Schools, who oversees the Haredi schools in Israel. 
Um, and eventually she gets told to come in and sign the enrollment papers. So this is what happens when she gets to the office. It's very small, so I'll read it for you. I arrived at the office of the headquarters for the independent schools, and he said, no. I said, why? You just told me I could come and sign the enrollment papers. He started screaming, shame on you. All these people doing work for you. And you, you speak. He's implying she is impertinent. No, we will not accept you. I waited in the office for two and a half hours, telling the secretary, I told my daughter I would buy her a backpack today. I'm not leaving until I can buy my daughter a backpack. I read Tehillim Psalms and cried. The rabbi came back, but I made him wait because I was in the middle of a Tehillah. He says, you have no shame. All these people are looking at you. It's rude to stay here. I heard him, but I didn't listen. I just kept crying and praying. He left and I kept reciting Tehillim. I waited another hour and a half, crying and praying. Then his secretary called me saying, are you still there? Come upstairs, the rabbi wants to speak with you. I go upstairs and he said, okay, here's the enrollment paper, sign. I hope I never see you again. So um, you see a lot of the tropes that we talked about earlier, the, the shame, the impertinence, the loudness, the sexualization potentially of her. Um, she is reading Tehillim, which in Haredi cosmology has a lot of power religiously for women. So she's embodying uh, female piousness in the most Haredi way possible. Um, and, and not interrupting a Tehillah was the correct thing to do. Um, and so she's using all of her piousness and all of her um, religious knowledge, basically, to achieve her goal, and she does in the end. So we have this crux happening around 2010 of incredible discrimination against Fardim and Mizrahim, and we have the increasing secular education um, while facing incredibly strict modesty codes for women. And so it really is no surprise that we get the new Haredi feminist movement, which is what they call themselves. It's not my name for them. Um, and in, an incredibly large proportion of them are Sephardi women. Um, so it all begins with anonymous chat rooms. People can go online and say things without fear of retaliation, and people start realizing that they're not alone in having these criticisms of Haredi society. These transfer into WhatsApp groups, and then eventually a group of women, it's about 15 or 20 women, who decide to meet a, at a bakery in a Tel Aviv mall, somewhere no Haredim will be. Um, and there's a lot of disagreement. I've talked to about half the women at this meeting, and some say 2012 and some say 2013. So around that time they met. Um, they sat in a circle, and they shared all their opinions that they were afraid to say at home, with their families, to anyone. Um, and they started to realize they were not alone. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Michal Chernovitsky. Um, she does feature heavily in my work, but she's not Sephardi, so we're not spending time on her today. She was there, and being at this meeting was what gave her the feeling that she could join Avodah. Um, she was a member of Avodah for, for five years before she started running for office with them. She's the Haredi woman who ran on the Labor Party ticket in the April elections. 
Um, she doesn't have money to do a third election right now. Um, nobody does. Uh, but she did fairly well. But um, this group that met in the mall became Lo Nivcharot, Lo Bocharot, No Voice, No Vote. And the spearhead person at the, at the heart of it was S.G. Shushan, who we heard from earlier. And she said to me, I never would have started fighting for women's rights if I hadn't already been discriminated against for being Sephardi. Um, so the original goal of Loni Nifcharot Obocharo was um, to not vote for Haredi parties until they allow women candidates. Um, now the organization is much bigger. It's just Nifcharot. And um, they run women's leadership courses, um, mentoring programs uh, to have, uh, um, sorry, Haredi women who've been taking on more leadership teach younger women. Um, they lobby in the Knesset for Haredi women's interests and generally, broadly, work on improving the status of women. Ruth also formed Ubuzkutan, which is unto their female marriage. Um, which is formed to be a Haredi Women's Party. It first was formed in 2015 and received about 0.04% of the vote, which isn't terrible, actually, um, and shows that there is interest in the Haredi world. Um, but she has a very clear identity of refusing to co cooperate with any non-Haredi parties or organizations. And she feels in the long run that that will gain her more Haredi women followers and have them trust her more. And she, she feels it will help them trust that they can come to her. And she may be very right. So she, like the others, is espousing a very syncretic feminist agenda, which I will explain in one minute. The reason why Sephardi women are becoming the feminist leaders is because really all the women's issues are Sephardi issues. When you create an underclass, the underclass will be disproportionately more affected by all the social problems that affect your society anyways. And so Ruth, Esti, Mikal, everyone agrees that these are the main issues today. Um, addressing domestic violence in Haredi society, Breast cancer education, because of the increasing emphasis on modesty, there has been a really big increase in fatality from breast cancer in the Haredi world because people aren't checking themselves, people aren't letting their doctor check them, um, and so it's getting caught far too late, and therefore there's higher um, morbidity from it. Um, there's other public health issues that are being addressed too, such as pelvic floor issues with having so many babies. Um, improving nursery teacher salaries. Almost a third of Haredi women work as nursery teachers. Um, and they get paid next to nothing because it's considered part of what needs to happen for the community. Um, and it limits women's independence. Um, addressing issues such as um, poverty and the social economy where people do things without getting paid um, and creating more, better wage equality across genders. Um, of course, representation for Haredi women's rights in the, in the Knesset. <coughs> Improving education access for both genders. And of course, agunot, which are women who've been denied gets by their husbands. So it's a syncretic feminism in that they're taking feminist ideology 
and applying it to sec secular areas where it doesn't conflict with rabbinical authority, authority or halacha, um, and not applying it to religion. They're not doing what um, the datila umi uh, feminists are doing, which is trying to have a Torah in the women's section of the Kotel, or, and trying to have egalitarian minions or women-only minions and things like that. That doesn't enter into their feminist ideology at all. Although that being said, um, there was a recent article in Haaretz about two weeks ago um, with uh, a woman who is part of, I believe, Bell's Hasidim, and she is pushing very hard for more Torah learning for women. So she, ha she has the status in the Bell's Hasidim to be able to do this. So we'll see. I think it may s switch over time to be more religious feminism, too. Um, some, like Michal and like Esti, um, take a very Western ideological, secular, religious distinction. Um, and so Michal, for instance, supports equal marriage, supports buses on Shabbat, even though she wouldn't use them. Um, Esti works with women Zionist organizations and um, very much will, will find funding wherever she can. Um, Ruth keeps it very pure and very Haredi only. Um, and I think that's very representative of, of sort of the future generally in um, Haredi society. So what, what does it mean for the future? Um, I think Haredi society is becoming more plural. There's the emergence of a Haredi middle class, um, especially with increasing higher education, lots of families having um, two incomes instead of one right now. Um, and the middle class is very accepted by the rest of the Haredi world. It's not considered a, a poor choice. Um, it's just not the mainstream of the husband spending his whole time in yeshiva. Um, because of the introduction of Balei Tshuva, so people who were raised not religious or less religious, who become Haredi as adults, they view their decision as a religious one, not a political one, and very clearly separate their ideologies of religion and politics. Um, and that's true, I found, among both the Israeli BT and the Anglo, the English-speaking BT, who are, they're very different populations, um, but they still distinguish between a religious and political identity. And that is starting to affect all the other Haredim as well. And it's becoming less simple that if you're Haredi, you vote a certain way. So whereas they used to vote as a bloc, it might not happen quite so much anymore. Um, and there's going to be new, more liberal com movements coming out of Haredi. Um, there are rabbis who take very liberal positions on, on things like wage equality. Um, in, what, it, what it really will look like is a syncretic incorporation of these secular ideologies where they'll take what works for the Haredi world and they'll leave what doesn't. There will still always be a Haredi identity, a pure, we are the true Jewish, unadulterated religious purity identity within the Haredi community. Um, but they're going to use secular ideas as it works for them, and that will gradually change them. There's also always going to be an extreme part. There's always going to be people who tend towards Naturai Karta and the extreme anti-Zionists. But 
they're, they're already considered a minority. They were considered sort of their own thing separate from Haredi in 1934 or 5 when they were formed. Um, so there will, there will be an increasingly wide spectrum of the Haredi world, but we're going to have to care about it because they will be a very, very big portion of the future of Israel's population and therefore decision-making and political process. Um, so thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.